Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Friday the 9th of the 7th, which means it is the day after the by-election when all of the counting is ongoing. Therefore, there's no reason to talk about the by-election because as we are recording this, basically nothing is known. Not nothing is known. Something is known, but not enough is known. So let's just start off as we mean to continue, Michael. The Children's Hospital, Michael. Isn't it fantastic? Still not built. Uh, I, I, the, the, the language, the, the announcement uh, that we have is that there's a 14-month delay, right? But just the cherry on the top is 14-month delay, but we can't, but we, they can't guarantee that there will not be other delays after that. So we're confident that there will be a 14-month delay, but we can't be absolutely sure that there won't be more delays after. And then when you look at the cost, they're just... They're just refusing to reveal the cost now. <laughs> no, 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 no. Sorry, we we can't. can't we, no, that would be just rank speculation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, you're, there is. Is there not something just really just fucked up when the government department is rejecting any discussion of the cost of the thing because that would just be just speculation, which is basically their way of saying we have no clue what this is going to cost. We don't know, and we don't want to get into some kind of fight where. You say, well, it's going to cost three billion, and we have to say, well, no, no, it won't cost three billion, which puts you in the position of, of having to answer that. Well, if it won't cost three billion, how much will it cost? I mean, you must have a reason to believe it won't cost three billion. And of course, there is always a chance you say it doesn't, it won't cost three billion, and then it does cost three billion, and you, you, people, you said it wouldn't. You promised, you promised it wouldn't. Although that's, frankly, the, the promises regarding what it will and what it won't cost seem to be, to be, that's, that's a, shall we say, something of a dead duck. I mean, the, the, what is, what, what it was going to cost has changed so many times now. The, any political flack over that, I don't know how much damage that can do anymore. I mean, I'm part of it. I can understand their reticence to discuss costs because building materials in the last year, the prices have been insane. Everything is, up, it's all over the place, it's difficult to source anything, the quality of the material you can actually get is down because everything is so tight it's just a, a mess of a thing I do want to at this point give a, give a props to Jimmy Sheehan, who we talked to about two years ago about this project he said it was an absolute mess, it was disastrous and it was going to cost at I think he said at least 2.1 billion, that's the figure that we've been using when we've been talking about the likely cost of this ever since Yes. And everyone has been saying that's ridiculous. It will not go that high. It's only at about, well, I, I think at the time it was just over a billion. Now it's at like 1.6 billion. But I think there is a growing acceptance, Michael, that this thing is coming in at, at least 2 billion. So I've got to, I've got to admire his foresight as to how bad this was going to get. Uh, in, a, there was an, in an answer to a question put down by Roshan Shortog, um, it was. They said that the government originally approved 1.43 billion for the project in 2018, and now because it's going to take more, it's going to cost more. That is the nature of the beast. Yeah, I love that. It's just Asher, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? It's going to take longer. It's going to cost more. That's just the way these things go. Um, the committee also heard the project will be delayed by at least 40 months. The risks of further delays upon that. David Gunning, who's the CEO of the hospital, said the delay is likely to increase to a result in an increase in the final cost, but he couldn't reveal any estimate, or he wouldn't reveal any estimate for what it could be. The estimated opening now is a date in the second half of 2024. Not 
to be that guy. But Gary, can you remember, didn't Leo give us a commitment? I believe the phrase was that barring a meteor strike, the hospital would be open by 2020. Yeah. No, I suppose Leo could argue that the meteor strike happened in the form of the pandemic. However, by 2020, that would seem to imply that it would be pretty well finished by... The, the finishing would have been done mostly by 2019. I mean, by, tw- by 2020, the thing would be virtually done. And one very much has the impression that by even by, by 2020, that it really wasn't done. So, what? let's see, they're saying second half of uh, 2024 to open now, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it looks like BAM is actually losing money on this. <laughs> it's... Uh... I the the language is fantastic. Mister Gunning, which he's talking, I he said he refused to add. I'm quoting him from the RT website. He refused to add what conditional costs are likely to amount to, saying that there are live contracts, live contracts, Gary, between the development board and the contractor BAM. I'm not in a position to elaborate further at this time, as it could compromise our ability to negotiate on behalf of the state at a later date. There's an extremely strong likelihood that any discussion on costs, however hypothetical, could prejudice enforcement of the existing contract and is very and very likely negatively impact or jeopardize our current engagements. Which does sound like they're they're that BAM may be on the end of the well, you signed up for this, lads, and we you know. Okay, yeah, there was a pandemic, but tough shit. Cabinet has signed off on the one point four billion parish. That's fine. But then there are there are over, according to what was told to the committee, there are over 900 outstanding claims in relation to costs. Yes. Now, part of that is uh, due to inflation. Part of that is due to it's Well, actually, with 900 claims, it's probably due to everything. Several of those are going to the high court. You've got 900 of them. They're estimating that those costs altogether would be somewhere in the region of 200 million if they're settled at a reasonable ask. This is a mess. Kill surprise. It's a mess. Who could have possibly guessed that such a thing would happen? And do you remember, again, when we talked about this two years ago, and you, you were talking to J- Jimmy Sheen about it, when he said one of the key things involved, and this, remember, is the man who's built three hospitals on budget and under time. He said one of the key things in building the hospital, or any hospital, is, is time, that you do it within the time frame. Because if you run late, particularly if you have any kind of substantial late, that <clears throat> the technologies involved will have moved on. And rather, the, the, and that the uh, the structures that you have you've designed and you've uh, maybe partially built will no longer actually fit the spec of the kind of tech that you want to put into the into the hospital. And then you're going to go have, you have to go into the process of retrofitting the the physical structure to take in the new technology, and that becomes a kind of a, a new cost, a new extra inflationary cost that you find it's almost impossible to estimate what that overrun is going to turn out to be yeah i thought that was uh, i must actually re-upload the interview with jimmy sheehan just even though it's it's two years old i, I don't think anything in it is out of date other than maybe some of the, the castings but that was that was a really interesting point that he had brought up that you never want to spend more than two years building a hospital because hospitals are laid out basically on a modular system that you'll go to the people who make this equipment and they can basically, they, they show you how the room would be laid out and you fit it all together. And yeah. every, you know, if you wait longer than two years to construct, you have to keep redesigning internally because they'll change the products they have available. And then everything else is impacted on. This product, this project has been in construction for 
a launch of 2024, that has to be a decade. It, it, it feels like it's been going on for most of my lifetime, but that, that's probably not true. Well, like you, you're talking now about a launch that's mid-2024, mid and if you take the 2020, I mean, that which actually was already late, you're, you're, you're not talking about like six months or a year down the line. You're talking about at least five years. So whatever whatever they were buying in, in the form of of medical apparatus and medical tech at the time, and presumably they must have had some kind of agreement when they were doing that. They, they would, this would have been done in parallel with the hospital. It's not that you build the hospital, then you go and look for the gear. You do the two two together, because you say it's a it's a modular process. There's no way in the world that they're going to be selling the same gear. It's just it is going to be, and none of this, by the way, guy, none of the things, uh, none of this addresses the actual fundamental problems that are associated with the site which still exist all of the negatives all of the downsides of putting it in the actual physical place where it is still exist no it's it's a terrible location i mean just to give you an idea of how long this has been going on the only time that gripped has ever been able to convince me to do a vox pop which for those who don't know you go onto the street and you ask members of the public for their opinion was just after we started when they managed to convince me to go onto the street and ask people about the um, children's hospital and, and how much it costs. Because we'd worked out, we found a lot of studies on how expensive the ancient wonders of the world were. And it turned out that you could have built a collection of them for the cost of the children's hospital at that point. Yeah. So we played a, a fun little game with members of the public of how many great pyramids do you think we could have for the cost of the children's hospital? Wouldn't you rather some of those? <laughs> uh, I don't know. <coughs> There's not a lot of practical use you can get out of a great pyramid. Well, there's not a lot of practical use you can get out of a decade-long hole into which we pour money. This is true. This is also true. A, a, a hole in uh, in St. James's Gate isn't isn't worth a whole lot. Oh, God, and do, you, do you remember Catherine Zappone coming out and saying that the... Uh, because people were complaining about the increasing costs, and she said the increasing costs are simply a sign of its quality. <laughs> Yeah, if you want a nice suit, you're going to have to pay for it. I remember when we were we were comparing the the price of the children's hospital against other hospitals, and the children's hospital is now is going to be one of the most expensive structures ever built by mankind in its history. Yes, like in all of human history. And I think the only hospital we could find that was more expensive than it was an Australian hospital. It was drone equipped, and patients were dealt with by robots. <laughs> I, can you remember the, I, the 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 spec for the there was a at the same time well at some stage it was the same time as this was being built they were building a children's hospital in Lisbon which I think was for it was a six hundred bed hospital or I can't remember maybe it was was it, was it six hundred bed or was it costing six hundred million but it was massively cheaper and. I would occasionally say, well, well, look what the Portuguese are doing. And the response they kept going, ah, well, yes. But, you know, I mean, that's Portugal. I mean, what, what, we have no idea what kind of quality standards they have. And the idea was that somehow we were going to be producing this super state-of-the-art, world-leading children's hospital. Whereas in Portugal, they'd probably be lying on bare you know, a mattress put on bare wood and they'd be going around and they'd just about have antibiotics. Yeah, like a Cuban hospital after the foreigners have left. That kind of thing, yeah. I think, yeah, I have a suspicion that 
the Portuguese are probably building a pretty decent hospital for what's going to be maybe a quarter or a fifth of what we're doing. And it'll end up with a bigger hospital. And probably, it'll probably be easier for some children in Ireland to get to the hospital in Lisbon than it will be, the, than it will be for them to get to the one here. Certainly if they're in a helicopter. It's quite interesting how this has happened. Part of it is the, is the structure that's overseeing it and the actual way this is being put together. And part of it is just because it's a brownfield site in the middle of a city with limited access. But Gary, you say it's interesting how this has happened. I've never understood how this has happened. And I'm not saying that as a, like, as a funny thing, a funny sarcastic comment. I've genuinely never understood. I have never seen a government so attached to a decision or to a project in the face of so much criticism and so many problems, bull ahead for no apparent political gain. I mean, I couldn't. I, 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 Berkey wanted to build um, the hospital in the matter, right? Beside the matter. Which, of course, meant it was going to be in his constituency. And I could see that that, that made, you could work out a benefit there. And I kept trying to understand, because we're now at this point where we're talking about the costs and the overruns and the nightmare scenarios and all that. But if we cast our minds back a very long time ago, when all of this was still being discussed, when we're still discussing the the, the correct location of it, and there were thousands and thousands of, of parents whose children were regularly attending the children's hospitals in Dublin, who signed petitions to say, please don't build it there, build it in Blanchestown on the, on, on the Greenfield site, off the M50. There were all of the there were the, the opinions of people like Jimmy Sheen and there were the opinions of so many doctors and so many consultants. There was just a massive amount of opposition to this. And there, and yet it seemed, it felt like the more opposition came, the more they said, no, we're not changing our minds. And I've never understood why. What was going on? Why they became so psychologically attached to this project, to this site? Never, I, I, still baffled. And... I suppose if I said this to Leo, Leo would say, well, because it's the best site. And I said, well, yeah, well, even if it is the best site, and it doesn't seem to me that, that it is the best site. I, mean, I, I, remember at the, I remember at the time going through the reports that recommended this as a site, and those reports had also been quite positive about the site in Blanchardstown. But what I remember from going through those reports is that the site in Blanchardstown, they had been requested to look at that. I think there were two reports, the Dolphin Report and another one. They had been requested to look at the Blanchardstown site particularly, which is a Greenfield site, uh, by the local TD, who would be Leo Varadkar. Right. (laughs) But then, you know, by the time you come into power, the decision has been made and they'd spent hundreds of millions by that point. And are you going to accept you made a mistake or that this is anyone's fault? Do you think that this is just simply the fallacy of sunk capital? I think this is a combination of the fallacy of some capital and no one wants to take ownership or be attached to this issue. They just want it to be a thing that happened. And it's, you know, it's no one's fault. It just happened. To a degree, they've been successful with that. I mean, we talked to a lot of people who will say to you, ah, well, you know, it's inevitable with big projects like this. There's just always going to be an overrun. There's always, it's always going to end up costing more than you thought. I, I have replied to the people, hold on now, I mean, that might have been the state once upon a time, but first of all, we've had all these massive infrastructure uh, projects in the state in the last 20 years 
particularly in road building and in other areas. And they they have come in on time, on budget or under time and under budget. And as regards building the hospitals, I mean, we have the example of Jimmy Sheen. And Jimmy Sheen says, actually, no. Jimmy, who, as we keep saying, is the man who has built three hospitals here and done it well, successfully. He says, and he seems to be a reasonably expert man, that the building of hospitals is not actually that complicated. It's it's a modular process. You have the everybody knows who are the people who do it and who know how to do it. You go to them. You you you, you work. You tell them what you need. They work out a plan and then they execute it within a, a defined time frame. That they say this is going to take this long, and you go and do it. But I I just <laughs> I suppose the pandemic has saved. I mean politically, when Hugo Chavez died. I, I remember writing, obviously it was rather sad for the Ugo's, Ugo's family and friends, but it was also a bit of a tragedy politically, I thought, because he died just in time so that the whole thing didn't just collapse in total shit around him. So that whatever happened afterwards, you could blame the Americans, you could blame Maduro, you could blame whoever came after him. But you, you could always think, well, if Ugo had been here, you know, it wouldn't have happened. And I think in a funny kind of a way, the pandemic is a similar thing. The pandemic has intervened, and now forever afterwards, whatever happens with the children's hospital, ah, well, the pandemic. Ah, well, you see, we didn't know. We couldn't have foreseen. It was the pandemic. And there will never be any real degree of political culpability assigned to the people involved in this. Because at the end, ah, well, you know, Things overrun, and then we had the pandemic. So what could you do? And I, we were saying around two point two billion. And that was the basis of well, what people were saying to us, wasn't it? The guesstimate was was around two point two billion. I mean, at this stage, I think they might settle for two point two billion. I mean, you know, considering that this was being talked about years ago at a time when the government was saying that was absolutely impossible, it could get to those level. I do have to congratulate those people for their ability to unerringly determine how much this was actually going to cost. Yeah, finger on the button. Yeah, because, I, I mean, people have been saying this was originally priced to cost 600 million. But that's not entirely correct. Because when it was meant to go to the matter, it was not priced at 600 million. I think it was priced in somewhere between three and 400 million. Well, I think it went up as far as 450 million. But that's still... <laughs> that's still... Like... That's a fifth of what it, it might cost now, and it might cost more. The rumour at the time was that the reason they had gone for the centre city location was not due to anything due to children, but rather because the uh, consultants and the unions had made it known that their preference was for a city location. Yeah, th There was this word going around that, they, that consultants just didn't want to be travelling long distances, going off in the M50 and... It was just going to be too hard. Now, presumably, if these consultants live in Dublin, they're aware of the traffic that that can be found occasionally going from, say, St. Vincent's to James's in the middle of the day or in the morning. I mean, that could be a tricky enough experience. Was it James Riley who initially launched this project? Oh, God, back in the days... Uh, James, James Riley had been talking about it in St. James's Hospital. Or did it, it, did it go matter, then St. James's... I think it went in the matter, and then St. James's, and then the, when it, around the time that it was going from matter to St. James's, the Blanchardstown option became popular. And Leo certainly had been advocating the, the Blanchardstown option when he was just a, 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 a chap 
no, I say he's a chap. He, he might have been. He was minister for transport at some. At the, I don't know if maybe he was still still a bit Blanchardstown advocacy in uh, a bit involved in that when he was just coming as minister for transport because that was under. That was still ending. That's to think. That's Enda Kenny. That feels like a long time ago, doesn't it? Well, I think this started in. I think the matter thing that was a hern. So that's like that's two thousand and five, two thousand and six. Yeah, yeah. So we are going to spend nearly twenty years building something which is meant to be built in two years. Oh, it's it's fantastic. It's a great little country. Yeah. On the plus side, you know. The children who survive will get to put their own children in it. <laughs> yeah. There are children who were ill in 2005 who are now probably have children. Who could be sick and are, are looking forward to putting them in here. <laughs> Look forward to putting them in while they themselves go on their on their day visit to Vincent's or to the matter. It's, 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 a great, it's great stuff. But anyway... We have seen incredibly important bills passed by the doll, bills that have restricted things that would generally be considered fundamental rights, things that have restricted what you can do with your day, how businesses operate that have had immense impact on the country. But even before that, things, important bills related to things like abortion, to gender identity, to hate speech, have been pushed through this doll with a speed that is incredible and generally without much debate at all. Anything that's gotten a little bit awkward has just been gulletined and forced through. It has not been a good doll, Michael, for actual debates. I have been very conscious of the speed at which legislation has gone through in this doll. For example, like the, the, the gender recognition bill went through lickety-split. Um... The establishment of this of the uh, uh, of this separate ethnicity, uh, ab- ab- abortion bills, um, and to the to the extent that I became aware of it, I became, I I wondered: is this peculiar to this particular doll? Are we just is, or was it always like this? It does seem to be. While at in the past, maybe the doll wasn't always a, the world's greatest debating chamber. There was more time given over to the more serious stuff, but this you have had really serious fundam- fundamental foundational issues utterly undiscussed, and then this rather unha- this is definitely something new to this dollars this habit of standing up and giving themselves a round of applause after they voted for some particularly odious piece of legislation. Yeah, that one I quite enjoy. It's you know when planes land and people clap. That's kind of like the plane landing and then the pilot coming out to you to clap for himself. Actually, you know, that, that, that builds it up a bit too much. Pilots have responsibility for the people they're flying. And, you know, when you, when you land, when you've been in, 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 a, in a tube of steel or aluminium, which is very definitely heavier than air, and you've travelled for some thousands of miles, and travelled those, those some thousands of miles in... In time, which is much, much faster than going on a horse. That moment when you hit the ground and you are now unlikely to die, I think you know, it's worthwhile, Gary. There Obviously, magic has been involved. And whoever was responsible for that, because as it was, ex- it was explained to me by a physicist once, or rather not explained to me, 
by physicist ones, that they don't really know why planes fly. There are lots of theories, and one of them is probably true, but they're not absolutely certain why planes fly. So that doesn't give me a great deal. I think there must be some element of alchemy involved. But you know, you, you've been in this, you fought. And you, it's not the pilot clapping. It's the people who are clapping for the pilot. Much like Irish people get off a bus and thank the bus driver, which is something which other people find out. This is them. This is the pilot coming out and giving himself a round of applause. You know, when you said that no one knows why planes fly, I thought that is so absolutely ridiculous that I will Google it as you're talking. And if you if you put in, how do planes fly into Google, the very first thing that comes up is an article in Scientific America going, no one can explain why planes stay in the air. So perhaps I was wrong about this. Well, I don't. I just, I believe physicists and mathematicians. I have a kind of a hierarchy of, 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 of academics that I believe. And physicists and mathematicians are high up on that. When they're talking about physics and mathematics, I should say. And he did seem to be, he was fairly straight-faced when he said it. Apparently, according to Scientific America, there are two competing theories uh, that illuminate the forces and factors of lift, but both are incomplete. This is from 2020. I suppose that's what Rumsfeld would have called an unknown unknown. There may well be an unknown unknown in there. I, I thought. Like pixies. No, I thought we knew. However, on the topic of bills that are worthy of debate, we finally found one. In this year, that's had so many that we could have we could have spent time on. Time yeah. has finally been spent on a bill. And Michael, that is the official languages bill. The official languages mm -hmm. bill. Well, we have two, don't we? I mean, it's well, not, there was. It's not like we're one of those country with like seventeen or eighteen. So this bill concerns itself with a number of things, mostly in protecting the status of Irish. Ensuring, putting an obligation that uh, all IT systems in the country or in the government can produce a particular type of fodder. Yes, I saw that. I think that was very important for everybody, that you know, the fodder was protected. According to the Irish Times, the debate on this bill has lasted 25 hours in total and extended over many weeks. <laughs> 25 hours. Uh, on the uh, the official languages bill. Well, there you go. I suppose it's maybe indicative that TDs are willing to have long and tedious debates about something as long as they're absolutely sure and convinced that they're talking about something that nobody else gives a wild flying fuck about. So it won't get them in trouble. No, the Irish language is a thing people like, so you're safe to spend 25 hours arguing about it. Now, I haven't checked that against the length of time given to other bills. My understanding is that that's substantially more, Michael, than most other things that we've put through this year. Substantially more. Well, imagine, Gary, if you will, that we were to plot a chart. And on that chart, you would go, you would, you, you would put a line, which would plot the amount of time that you spent dealing with each bill, right? And it increased or decreased, depending on the value of importance that you gave to that particular piece of legislation. So we would say we would we would take this piece of legislation as a baseline that this is our this is the point we're going to start for less and more, and therefore something which was a five times more important than whether or not you the computer systems within the state should be able to produce a FADA in all circumstances. You know, something that was more five times more important than that. We get five times more 
debating time. My suspicion, Gary, is that that, act, that graph would not be plotted if we were to actually use implement that metric on what's happened in the doll in the last, and I wouldn't say in the last year, but I'd say since this doll came into being, and probably the doll before it as well. There's, this, this is a line I did quite like, Michael. The bill will also have a requirement for any company which supplies public services to make arrangements for the use of Irish to become an integral part of the service provided. Now, <laughs> I'm going to be very interested on the exact wording of this bill when it passes on that provision, because there might be some money in that, Michael. You would imagine that that would work out much like the translation services in the EU, where you'll bring someone in on a very good wage, and then they will do nothing all day because there's no public demand. Fire those people who go out of their way to be awkward about this. But the, th the thing, the part I found that's actually quite interesting is the, the bill will also have now, after the debate, a requirement that 20% of all civil service recruits by 2030 must be proficient in Irish. Proficient? Now, for the viewer, I don't know, I presume because it's in a piece of legislation they've chosen these words carefully proficient is the in in language uh say if you're in language teaching proficient is the highest standard you can achieve below mother tongue proficiency is a step under and not necessarily a big step under bilingualism so even people who are very good at languages are not necessarily proficient that's a very high standard to set what i think will happen here is that certain departments, important departments, Michael, like um, yes. finance, may, shall we say, care more about the quality of their applicants and may therefore hoist this 20% onto other departments. In the same way that large companies will sometimes fill their HR departments with women so that they can say there are more women in, in the company. Somewhere like agriculture. No, agriculture is still too important. At rural affairs... Uh, how, how important is agriculture? I asked somebody yesterday who was very involved in the politics and a farmer, who was the Minister for Agriculture? And we had five minutes of health scratching. And to be honest, neither of us could remember. There was a time in this country and in my lifetime where the hierarchy went Taoiseach, Minister for Finance, Minister for Agriculture. No longer. I don't know how important the Minister for Agriculture really is these days. Who is the Minister for Agriculture, can you think? It's Charlie uh, McConnellog. Charlie McConnellog. I was close enough. I said I, I said, I said, something to the effect, it's, it's not Joe McHugh, is it? Joe McHugh is almost the same, isn't he? Because it's all Donegal. I mean, I, th I think most people <laughs> would have also accepted Michael Creed. You're close enough. Michael Creed, we, we thought Michael Creed had been the Minister for Agriculture. Yeah, he's, he's dead now, but he was. Well, not literally dead, figuratively dead. Ah, figuratively, I was wondering. I thought, God... I thought I would have heard that. Apparently, my my tendency of when people have left their positions of saying they have died is deeply confusing to people. Well, yes, it's it it it's it's you need a little sign to hold up saying you know, sort of figurative. They were important, and now they're not. Therefore, they're dead. Oh, I see. This is this is Gary World, is it? Yes, they may gloriously resurrect later. The problem here, the problem with twenty percent requiring twenty percent to have proficiency in anything or to have any characteristic that is not a requirement of their job and does not directly relate to their actual quality is that you're going to take a hit on quality unless there is a supply of people who can actually meet that requirement trivially without actually having to do anything 
And I don't think that's the case currently. I don't think we have enough Irish speakers to do that. Which means either you're going to have to increase the rate of Irish speakers, or you're going to have to accept people who are lower quality than other applicants because they can speak Irish. And I don't think that helps Irish in any way. Like, the, the point of all of these laws is to promote the use of the Irish language. And how does, that, how does any of this do that? I suppose the argument would be that by creating this kind of quota, you are incentivizing people to not learn Irish. We all learn Irish. Well, most of us learn Irish. But to improve your Irish to such a standard that you become proficient. 20% proficient, though. That seems to me to be a big call. I, I, I would be very... It's curious to know, I mean, what percentage of the population of this country would be considered to be proficient in Irish? But, it, as I say, it may be the idea that you know, this will provide an incentive to people who are interested in going into the service, that they will go off and spend two months in the Gale Talks to bring themselves up to that level, so that it gives them a leg up in the service. So the we have the census figures on this, of how many people say they can speak Irish, and how many people say they speak it daily. The thing is, everyone in this area kind of recognises that those figures are bullshit, that they're massively inflated. So I think when you poll it, something like 40% of people say that they are somewhat proficient with the Irish language. But that's not really the case. Well, see, I don't know how somewhat, somewhat proficient doesn't make any sense. Again, I'm using the word, the word proficient maybe in a technical sense you can't be somewhat proficient that's being somewhat pregnant you are either proficient or you're not you've got beginner false beginner lower intermediate intermediate upper intermediate and, and then proficient i mean that and that's very in a very gross kind of division but you have you, proficient bilingual or, uh, mother tongue when you go to gale talks and you find in gale, and they're not I mean, the gale talks are not like massively extended and even if you go into the largest and most vigorous of the Gale Talks up in Donegal and you, you go into places and, and most of the people are speaking English, gives you, it makes you suspicious. No, I suppose the largest, that's maybe a false a, a false equation really because I think most of the figures today would, well, would suggest that the largest concentration of Irish speakers is in the city of Dublin. And I know anecdotally that it, in the last, in the last couple, couple of decades, that the Irish language has become, amongst certain sections, say, of South Dublin privately educated people, has become quite a thing. Say, in GA circles, like in Dublin football and Dublin hurling area, that uh, they speak of Irish in dressing rooms amongst these privately educated middle-class lads is something that they do. It's part of their group identity. So... But I think most of these boys are going into banking, <laughs> or or in or, or multinationals. They're not. They're not going into the civil service. I mean, that is one way you could actually get people to learn and speak Irish. It was considered to be a sign of social status, and in I think in certain cohorts, you're right, it is becoming, but not yet. I mean, and not and not broadly across the country. I don't think. Mm, I'm somewhere in the region of seventy thousand people say they speak Irish daily and outside the education systems, not in schools. Yeah, 70,000 people, that's not very many. I mean, what's the population getting on about 5 million these days? Yep. And you're looking to 20% of 
of your intake is going to be proficient. So, how about good luck to them? So, 20% of the civil service recruits, they're probably going to have to accept some dramatic cuts in quality of applicant. Or maybe they're just not going to recruit that many people. I mean, that's also, uh, I think it will be, it'll be hoisted outside of certain departments. Certain departments are, are too, you see this with quotas all of the time. I mentioned HR in companies. The reason that companies do that is that they don't want restrictions on mission-critical roles. And it's nothing to do with whether or not they have any concern about putting a woman in that position or putting whoever or whatever minority in that position. It's because they don't want a situation where if a role has to be replaced, they are limited in who they can replace that role with because they need to maintain some sort of quota. So they'll keep those people out of mission-critical roles, which is not the intent of a uh, quota system, but is a deeply amusing unintended consequence. Well, it's not going to go into how much you choose to be amused by it or not. up to yourself. I'm still stuck, I mean, to me, well, uh, this is kind of gesture politics. It's, uh, you know, we, 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 we love the language and we love the culture and we're, we're going to do something about it. I'm still stuck with the idea that they spent 25 hours debating the bill. Well, that's the thing I thought was particularly interesting because we've seen bills, deeply important bills, just go through as a matter of cursory attention and the government has just ended the debate. In some in some cases, there weren't even any debate because the opposition just came behind it, put in a few perfunctory amendments and then just uh, said, we're done here. But this, yeah, this takes weeks and hours upon hours of highly detailed debating about when it can be delivered and exactly what can be delivered and, you know, just making sure it is solid. The sort of scrutiny that, Michael, one would expect to go into any bill of importance. So I think my issue here is less the time they spent on it and more that they don't spend this amount of time on actually important bills. They'll just rubber stamp those. Well, I suppose that a number of the bills that one might consider important that you you don't want to start talking about them because if you start talking about them then you might start discovering the fundamental weaknesses in the or coherence in the legislation itself um you might start to make people out there in the public aware of the bullshit that you're trying to pull off and you don't want that that kind of stuff happening you don't Joe Public started to become aware that you're doing this nonsense. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine if they spent weeks and weeks and weeks discussing the the identity, the gender identity bill, and that started getting reported widely. I mean, I still tell people what the legislation is, and irrespective of what one's own opinion might be of the of, of the bill itself and the legislation, people would look at you blankly and think, "Yeah, no, you're just making that up. That's nonsense." Somebody would have told us if they were doing that. We think, oh, no, that's 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 the law. We are where we are, and the city of Kenya does wonder if the, the the speed at which it it went through was just to make sure that Joe Public didn't start to ask awkward questions about what the hell you're doing up there, Dollar. Also, I think part of it is you don't need extensive briefing to comment on this or to debate this, and you're unlikely to say something that is in the face of it just wrong. Whereas more technical bills, maybe more important bills, you can say something that's ill-considered quite easily. Like, if you're debating hate speech, it's very easy to say something on either side that is going to be reported on quite critically. And you can misspeak or misstep or speak, you know, just say something with an unfortunate phrase, which lands you in trouble. Unlikely to happen. But anyway, just that is 
that is going to go into force. It will be another awful law. It will do nothing to promote the Irish language. But it will make the civil service worse, which is actually an impressive achievement. (laughs) We shall see. I suppose by the time we come back on Sunday, Gary, we will know who has been victorious in in Dublin Bay. And it will either be fascinating and interesting or dull and utterly utterly predictable. Or, or, or maybe both. But uh, right now, the, the tallies are coming in from the, city, the inner city, so that I don't think they're telling us a whole lot, really. It could be f- fourth time lucky. Only certain boxes have been opened. Currently, Batrick and Boylan are doing well. Gagan is doing okay. We'll see how that goes. Could go anyway. No point commenting. But we shall have fun talking about it a little bit, I'm sure, when we come back on Sunday. All the best. But until then, bye-bye.